Thank you so much for tuning in to the logs. Coming up, episode 7, Let Us Look to Moral Status. Who deserves our correct action, our moral action, an action that comes from virtue and justice? It's a weird question to ask because you'd think that everybody, everybody that you encounter should receive that just action. But we come across situations in our lives in which doing the right thing doesn't seem all that clear. And to who we're supposed to do the right thing to isn't all that easy to determine either. This argument is really going to bounce off what we talked about in episode 6. In that episode, we compared the person or the individual to an actor, an actor who's placed in situations where they're called to act in specific ways. And we said that that actor was acting in terms of the situation or the script that they're in, because we defined all situations in terms of a play or movie or show. And we placed actors in their roles, and they conduct themselves justly or according to the script. What we're going to talk about here is what the individual is supposed to do in that situation. What if we don't have a script? What if we just have actors? How is an actor to determine who they're playing with? Who they should be saying their lines to? When we talk about this qualification aspect of the other that you're interacting with, we get into an argument referencing the ideas of moral status. Who is morally important in the scene? Which other actors must we act upon with our moral actions? And this is a very difficult argument to make. And I can tell you that we may not even come to a conclusion in this program, but we can raise the argument and see how we can approach it, bring it to light. Because the thing is, when we talk about moral status, we identify an issue that's very prevalent. Who deserves just action? Who deserves our moral obligations in terms of virtues and rights and basically good actions from one person to the other, from the actor to the other actor? Because when you define moral status, we risk getting too specific in some cases. And if we do so, we can lose some people in the process, some individuals that deserve that status, that deserve to be treated justly. If we get too broad in our theories and just try to stretch them out to fit as many beings as possible, it may not be optimal in the world because actors can only work with so much and actions are constantly being conducted. So on this episode, let's reorient what we talked about in episode six. And if you haven't listened to that episode, I encourage you to go check it out, because a lot of our argument is going to be based in the information that we discovered in that episode. It'll uh, enrich in what we're going to be talking about in this episode. Isn't enrich in one of those weird words? It's just like one of those words that you'll say, but not know exactly how you know that word. I googled it. It is a thing. It's a verb meaning to enrich or to make richer. So it's definitely a good, uh, good word for what I was talking about. Nonetheless, in this episode, we're going to talk about identification of individuals in terms of the people that they act upon. We're going to switch our ideas of them being actors in a scene, because when we say actors, we're implying that there's a script or some sort of larger force that's governing their action. And in doing so, in identifying people as individuals, we're going to distinguish between morally important beings, beings that have the moral status, versus those that are not morally important. Okay. So before we move on, let's get a definition down real quick. 
moral status. What moral status is, is a way of looking at individuals and classifying them based on their importance, their moral importance. And now what does moral importance mean? Moral importance refers to somebody that you give considerations to, moral considerations. Okay, now what are moral considerations? Moral considerations are based on a moral agent's obligation. Okay, what's a moral agent? A moral agent is an autonomous being that governs themselves. So they adhere to their own set of morals, their own code, their own virtues, and they're capable of acting in accordance with that moral code. They're capable of administering moral consideration on individuals they deem morally important because those individuals have achieved a certain level of moral status. So now we've determined moral agents are capable of undergoing their own sets of actions and they themselves determine who they're acting upon. They are capable of decision making in terms of the other person or the other individual. It doesn't have to be a person. It could be any being, be an animal. So let's spend some time with the moral agent idea because we need to kind of shift how we're looking at this from episode six when we're talking about actors because moral agents are not actors anymore. As we've said, actors in some way are predetermined because actors are in something. A person in a community is an actor because they're acting in terms of what the community wants them to act like. Moral agents are capable of acting on their own, of their own accord. They don't follow a script. And if they do follow a script, it's their own because they are virtuous beings capable of administering their own actions because they can think on their own feet and make decisions. And to determine this, to see how the person is crafted, in a sense, how their morals and virtues are crafted, we can look to Aristotle. We can look to Aristotelian ethics. Aristotle is a very interesting guy because he makes everything practical. The way that he writes things, you think that anything that he comes across in terms of biology to philosophy can work. And what he says about moral character, moral character being a virtue that's instilled in a person who's acting like the moral character, he says that a person with moral character is a truly virtuous person. And that person acts upon others always with correct action. And they do that because they've practiced that. Aristotle said that everything really comes with practice, even true virtue. And it's a very simple equation. He said that if you want to become a truly virtuous person, you have to act in the correct way. And he said if you keep that up, if you keep up doing correct actions, you will eventually become a truly virtuous being full of moral character because you've practiced how to be good. It makes sense, right? You practice good manners. You think back to kindergarten, preschool, grade school. If you practice good manners, you're much more likely to be more mannered. So the moral character of a person is practiced because practicing correct action towards other people would lead to true virtue because you know how to act in front of other people in a variety of situations. Okay, so where does this get us in our argument about moral agents? We highlighted that moral agents follow a code, their own morals, their own virtues. That's how they define their code, by experiencing and learning and crafting their person in terms of whatever virtue that the situation calls for. Aristotle defined virtues like courage or honor or justice. And he said that to practice his virtue ethics, you also have to practice something he called the doctrine of the mean. The doctrine of the mean is something that he developed to show how a person functions neither in excess nor in deficiency. Let's take an example in terms of courage. This is a, a good example to highlight what he means by the doctrine of the mean, no excess, no deficiency. So imagine there's an average person walking down the street on the sidewalk and they come across this house that's burning. 
they're like, oh man, what's going on? And they kind of turn and they see, well, they hear rather, somebody calling in from the house saying, help, help. Now, pause for a second. Remember, this is an average person. They don't have any firefighter training of any sort. So what are they to do? What we're trying to highlight in this situation is the virtue of courage. And we're trying to see what would be the excess or the deficiency or the mean of courage in this situation. So what does the excess look like? Well, we can define that to be recklessness. In this scenario, this person, this average person can go and run into the fire, bust down the door with no equipment, no means to actually extract the person from the burning house. It's reckless because now that person is putting two people's lives in danger, twice the problem for whoever has to come next and save them. That person could maybe do something wrong and actually cause harm on the other person, making the problem worse. So that's an excess of courage because you're being reckless in that situation. Okay, now let's look at the deficiency of courage, which is cowardice. In that situation, a cowardly action would be to get scared of the fire and then run away. Again, here, this is a deficiency of courage because you're not doing anything in the situation to help. Because that person has the means to help. And we can see that in the mean of courage for this individual. The normal amount of courage needed in that situation requires an action like this. The person walks, they see the fire, they quickly dial 911. It's an emergency. Uh, there's a fire at so-and-so. Come and help me out. There's a person trapped inside, I think. Something like that. Of course, with a lot more urgency, I didn't put on my best acting voice just then. And then you can go, maybe even talk to the person inside, scream, you know, I've called 911, stuff like that. Don't panic. I know there's a fire all around you. They are coming to help. Maybe you can go warn the neighbors, tell them, hey, you know what? There's a fire next door. Your house can catch on fire any minute. I'd recommend you evacuate for the uh, foreseeable future until the emergency services arrive. And the person should say stuff like this, stuff that they are able to do, actions that they are able to undergo. Because remember, in this scenario, it's just an average person coming across this fire. And now we look at this doctrine of the mean. And in the middle, we see the mean, the average. And at the two ends, we see excess and deficiency. And if you heard the last episode, you're well-versed in what we talked about with the scale of taboo versus class. Remember? It's a scale that on one end, on the good end of that action, has class. And on the other, the bad end of action that shouldn't be undergone is taboo. And in the middle, it's just normal action that should be undergone in any situation. And there we use the examples of somebody in a hall. Somebody standing in a hallway waiting for whatever, and they see another person walking down the hallway. Somebody trips with their papers. There we define the normal action. The good action in that situation would be to go help the person out and then send them on their way while you're waiting for your class. We said that the classy action would be to notice that you have time before your class, you help them pick up the papers, and maybe take them to wherever they need to go so the person doesn't have to carry so much. And the taboo action would be to not do anything and just watch the person struggle. And then we also had a similar example of the boy going to the prom. And that scale, I don't think we actually gave a name to the scale in the last episode. Let's call it the scale of correct action. Sounds good. So the scale of correct action is not so different from the doctrine of the mean. Again, they're two sides of a coin. Very slightly different because one is talking about an actor in a situation and the other is talking about a moral agent in an interaction. It's a very subtle difference, 
But the difference is there. The actor in the situation, remember, follows a script. They're being pushed by something because action sociologically is governed by the community because the community is deciding what the correct action is. It's deciding what the classy and the taboo actions are. And then they force actors within that community to function in a specific way. Moral agency is only within the individual. The scenario with the fire, it was only governed by the individual's abilities to help in that situation. If he had training, firefighter training, he could have done more. And if he had some sort of case where he couldn't help at all, he could have been morally justified in not helping. Whatever the conditions are, it's based on what the person is. Imagine yourself in that situation, because even looking as an outsider towards that person and deciding on whether their actions are right or wrong is a communal force. It goes under the scale of correct action. You move away from moral agency in terms of the individual. When we're talking about another person, we're creating a communal structure again. So you got to think about it in terms of the individual. The individual only had the capabilities of an average person. So they acted in terms of an average person, the mean action, the good action. If they acted beyond that, they could get themselves killed. And if they acted below that, they're acting cowardly. And this is the character that we're going to use in our story today. It's going to be about the moral agent, the moral agent acting in some sort of situation, in an interaction. Because as we've said, in these situations, we're talking about an autonomous individual acting on another one. More importantly, we're looking specifically at that autonomous individual and seeing who they're acting upon and how they determine who they're acting upon in terms of their moral code, as we define in the Aristotelian sense, their virtues. So why is this important? Why are we focusing on this? Why are we making an episode on moral status and the moral agent? Well, it's because of this. It's because of the fact that people are giving worth to other people. The moral agent is giving worth to another being, another individual. And we want to get to the crux of how they determine, how they qualify the importance of another individual. And if we do so, can we see how they treat those qualifications? Can we see any biases or any personality traits that veer them towards one degree of moral importance from another? Because as we've already determined, the moral agent is a full person because they've accumulated their own virtues and they live by their own moral code. More importantly, they're decision-making beings. They can make choices to change the course of their life. And this is important when we are comparing it to the actors, the actor's idea from the last episode, because these people, these agents, are not following a script. There is no informal social sanction, the unspoken rules of the society. Those don't exist, and they're not pushing them in a direction. Because remember, we're looking at this in a vacuum. We're just looking at the moral agent acting on another person. We're trying to remove all communal effects on that individual. So in that case, everything is reliant on the ability of the moral agent to determine who they should act justly upon, and who their definition of moral importance, who does that matter for? What are the beings that should get moral consideration in their eyes? And we're kind of revolving around this point, but when it really comes down to it, it's saying what or who a moral agent or an autonomous individual should care about. Who they should care about enough to treat them well, to treat them according to their own ideals. Who earns that status, that rank. And from there, we get into this argument of moral status. How do we define it? Can we establish rules that moral agents can follow to show who can be of moral consideration and who cannot? A very important field where this matters so much is medicine. Because in medicine, 
the entire medical staff is exposed to people below their capacity, mentally and physically. The healthcare staff has to determine who deserves or who's ranked in a class of status that deserves moral consideration from the staff to the patient. Because now we're treating the healthcare staff as moral agents because they're capable of decision making. And here we see why this example works so well because the people in the healthcare staff, be them the doctors or the nurses or the surgeons or the nursing assistants, are decision making on the part of the patient because they're deciding treatment plans, they're deciding the diagnosis prior to that. And you also have cases where the patient can't act in accordance with themselves. A patient could be suffering from a mental disability that dampens the cognitive capabilities. There can be cases where there's a medically induced coma that's administered and the patient physically cannot do anything in their own stead. So in these cases, what is the medical staff to do? Because moral agents rely on other moral agents to act for themselves. Because autonomous individuals should be acting for themselves. What happens when you remove the autonomy? Are they not considered agents in and of themselves anymore? Are they considered less? Apparently that's what one nurse thought at this uh, healthcare facility in Arizona. I don't know if you've heard this story, but there was a woman in a 14-year coma at this healthcare facility, and she gave birth. She was pregnant, and she gave birth. She was in a coma for 14 years, or she still is, and there were allegations of rape, and the suspect since has been found, and it ended up being one of the nurses that worked at the facility. He was a part of that healthcare staff. The question is, did he deem that woman in the coma as less of a human being? not an agent that can act autonomously because she couldn't act autonomously. She was in the coma. So what are the limits here? How do we create guidelines to protect people, not only autonomous individuals that can actually act on themselves, but all people, people with disabilities, people in these physical states, and maybe extend it beyond people and protect animals too. So how do we go about doing this? There have to be some guidelines that moral agents have to follow, and there are. Since our argument here is going to govern a wide swath of what biomedical ethics is, I'm going to be using a book called Principles of Biomedical Ethics by Tom L. Beecham and James F. Childress. They've crafted this book to encompass all that healthcare ethics needs to be. And the way that they design it, it's not so hard focused on medicine. They design it as a broad strokes idea with examples based in the medical field that are very easy to understand. Because all people should be well-versed in biomedical ethics and bioethics. So it functions well for all of our examples today, whether they're based in medicine or they're not. And as we begun the program today, the authors craft the first argument on virtue. How do we develop the moral character that defines the autonomous individual, the person that will undergo these actions? And as we've developed that, we know there's something called the doctrine of the mean if we follow our Satilian ethics, and we know that there is a excess of action and a deficiency of action and we try to stay within the mean the mean is defined of course by our capabilities so the mean for a medical professional in the hospital setting is going to be much different from the mean of an average person walking across the street let's say the fire example and there we define moral agents moral agents are the individuals and then they move in tom l beecham and james f childress they move in to talk about moral status what is moral status? How can we design an argument to protect people? Because a lot of their book is focused on vulnerable populations. Because especially in medicine, you see people that are vulnerable. They're, they're weakened in some sort of sense, be that physical or mental. And for those people that happen to have medically induced comas or mental disabilities, how do you protect those people when they can't act for themselves? 
because we've defined that a moral agent is morally important and they deserve moral consideration in the eyes of other moral agents. So moral agent X needs to do virtuous right action by moral agent Y. Now enter another individual, individual Z. And individual Z does not contain the capabilities to act of their own accord. Do either moral agent X or moral agent Y have the obligation to act virtuously and correctly towards individual Z? And to make this argument simple, let's just say individual Z is a human. And of course, most people would say, yes, moral agents X and Y should act virtuously onto individual Z. But what if individual Z can't make any decisions for himself? Are moral agents X and Y supposed to do, say, if they were healthcare professionals, do what it takes to help moral agents Z increase their mental and physical capabilities? Do moral agents X and Y see Z as important? Because Z can't make decisions by himself. So under what guidelines can the moral agents use to say, okay, this person, Z, needs to be treated with our obligations. They need to be treated with the utmost respect that we give to other moral agents. And they need to be treated with autonomy, as if they can't act by themselves and make their own decisions. So what are these guidelines? First, what the authors do is highlight five theories, theories of moral status that contain rules for how individuals should be assessed. If they pass whatever assessment is required by an individual theory, they can then be considered of moral importance. And these are the theories. There are five. The first one that the authors cover is based on the properties of being a human. They say, quote, all humans have full moral status and only humans have that status, end quote. So this gives us one way of looking at moral status. So with this one, any individual that is a homo sapien is considered to be of moral importance. And to us humans, that makes sense because, you know, you want to treat other humans according to your obligations. And this theory is also good because anyone that is a human retains that moral status. So it doesn't matter if there's a mental disability, a physical disability, a coma that may be induced. It doesn't matter if they're a child or a fetus that isn't up to their full mental capacity yet. But the issue with this theory is that we risk losing out on all other species because there are species that can reach the human levels of learning capability and memory. Monkeys and dogs that can be as smart as toddlers in some cases, maybe even more. So why do we discriminate those beings when they still retain the capabilities to understand the world around them? So this can't really fit exactly what we want in moral status because we want to protect all beings that retain similar levels of complexity to us humans. So then we can move on to our next theory that we can explore called the theory of cognitive properties. And the authors here, they explain what cognitive properties mean. It's under the umbrella of cognition. And they say that, quote, cognition refers to processes of awareness such as perception, memory, understanding, and thinking, end quote. So if the individual here is self-aware, they can think on their own two feet, or they don't have to be bipedal, they could be four-legged too, but they have these freedoms to act according to what they think, because they can look at a situation and act from that. They could solve problems, basically. And what this theory does is include those animals that are capable of doing that. But what we lose in this one are all those people with the mental disabilities that aren't capable of maintaining that complex cognitive thought. So this can't work either. Now, the third theory here that the authors explain is the theory based on moral agency. It basically is saying, are you a moral agent? And that's really confusing because this whole entire time we've been saying who could be, who could reach the status of moral agent. The authors explain here that a moral agent has to satisfy two conditions. And the conditions are, quote, one, the individual is capable of making moral judgments about the righteous and the wrongness of actions. 
and two, the individual has motives that can be judged morally, end quote. So what these refer to is a capacity to understand morals. It's not really saying, can you act in this way? It's more saying, can you understand what is a right action in a certain situation? Using the example before with the fire, what is the right course of action and what is the wrong course of action there? And this theory claims that if the person or any individual being cannot describe their actions in terms of what should be right in that situation and what would be wrong in that situation, they haven't acquired moral importance. And what this does again is remove all those vulnerable human populations that need our protection. And it also removes all animals that can't decide right from wrong in a situation like that. So this one can't work either. So now let's try another one. This is number four. And this theory is based on sentience. Sentience is a different kind of consciousness. It's a consciousness that's based on the ability to feel things. The most important feelings that are defined by the authors here are the feelings of pain and pleasure. And what the theory is claiming here is that if there is an individual that can feel pain, then they are morally important. And they deserve consideration from moral agents to not cause them that pain. So here's what the authors say about that in terms of pain. Quote, In its most basic form, the central line of the argument in the fourth theory is the following. Pain is an evil. Pleasure is a good. To cause pain to an entity is to harm it. Many beings can experience pain and suffering. To harm these individuals is to wrong them. These harm-causing actions are morally prohibited, unless one has moral reasons sufficient to justify them. End quote. And generally, a moral agent doesn't have the sufficient justification to cause pain on another individual. So most of the time, moral agents cannot cause pain. They cannot undergo actions that cause pain to pain-feeling individuals. And this is another good theory too, because you don't want to do any harm to other people or to other animals. But what if there are people or there are animals that can't undergo the perception of pain? In a sense, they can't feel pain. And there is a human condition for that. It's called congenital insensitivity to pain, or CIP. What happens with this condition is that the person cannot feel pain because their brain cannot process the pain receptors that are all over their body. Either they're not working right or there's some error in the messages coming from the pain receptors to the brain. What it comes down to is the person cannot feel pain. So then what the theory of sentience says is that these people are not of moral importance. But they're clearly human because everything else is normal. The only thing they can't feel is pain. They look like a normal human being. But of course, I'm not being insensitive to anybody with this condition because there are severe complications that come throughout life. Their life is far from normal because pain reception can be based in things like protecting your hands from burning if you touch a hot stove, all the way to producing the feeling of needing to go to the bathroom. So we can't use this theory either because it's getting rid of populations again. And now we move to the fifth theory, which is arguably one of the weaker ones, because this theory is based on relationships. The theory claims that relational properties can create moral status. Once there's a relationship that is established between two people, each person begins to embody a role. And when you have roles, you have obligations to the other people. So the example that they use in the book is the patient-physician example. Because there is, say, in the doctor-patient relationship, there's a doctor that is filling the role of healthcare provider, and then there's a patient that's filling the role of the person in medical need. And as this relationship is established, the roles and obligations of both parties are hardened. So it's saying that the doctor has to do his job in medicine to fulfill the patient. And then the patient has to do their job to listen to the doctor, for example. And this is a good theory too. It looks very attractive at the surface because you're saying, okay, people that are in communion with each other are slowly going to bond and, and understand who they owe their obligations to. So moral agents 
agents are going to say, say the doctor, I need to provide the best medical care to this patient. And the patient is going to say, I need to listen to my doctor because he is providing the best care he can for me. And then everybody wins because the patient is feeling better and the doctor did his job. But what the issue is with this theory is that relationships are just that, they're relationships. It's showing how these interactions can be established in terms of moral agents coming into contact with other moral agents, but it's not telling us at the onset who is deserving of moral importance. You can boil it down to saying, oh wait, I don't know you, I don't owe you any correct action. Because as we said a while back, moral agents are not actors. You can't base all actions on a script or something that they follow, the communal pressure. Moral agents are acting autonomously. So we've established here that none of these theories can really encompass everything that we need a theory of moral status to be. They're always lacking something. They're leaving an important group out of the community of morally ranked individuals, the beings that require considerations from moral agents. And this is a difficult issue to solve because how do you make a theory that can work for everybody, for every single situation? Because as we've said earlier in this episode, if you make it really, really specific, you risk leaving people out, like we saw in the five theories. And then if you extend it to be very broad, you risk making it inoptimal for you in the real world. Because remember, moral agents need to live by a code, by virtues, and those virtues need to be identified. So if we have guidelines that are so broad and so incapable of being used in just a normal setting, they could risk doing harm because then we leave most of it to the agents and then their personal biases can turn what they think is a moral agent. We lose the guidelines in that sense. And then we could lead to injustice across those vulnerable groups, the groups that need the most protection from these ideas of moral status. In the book, The Principles of Biomedical Ethics, I am using the seventh edition, just so you are aware. What the authors Beecham and Childress decide to do is combine all the theories, because they figure if no one theory can provide all the criteria needed for who a morally important individual is, what if we just put them all together and make five new guidelines, not theories anymore? And remember, a theory in science is different from how we use the word theory in just common speak. Because when we say theory in just the common sense, we usually associate that with more of a a thought or a hypothesis for something. Like, oh, I have a theory for this or that. But in science, a theory is a rigid thing. It's backed by rational thought and evidence. It can be used in scientific reasoning and thought. So you think the theory of evolution, the theory of relativity, those are very entrenched theories with a lot of evidence behind them. Take it back to our theories of moral agency, the theory of sentience, the theory of cognitive properties, the five theories that we spoke about. Those are all based in some sort of evidence because there's very hard evidence that humans have cognitive properties and they're self-aware. And all five theories are very reasonable. But Beecham and Childers feel that the theory should be changed into criteria. They don't think that entrenched evidence should be used in determination of moral status because that could lead to things like saying only humans deserve moral status, which leads to behaviors of insensitivity to all other groups, all other animals. Guidelines allow the moral agent to have more agency. It's just that. It provides a way to adhere those rules into yourself, into the virtues, rights, and obligations that the moral agent already has. And what that allows you to do is to focus in on those Aristotelian doctrine of the mean ideas because you function within your guidelines and you could work with your guidelines. You can't work with your theories. Theories are just theories. They're usually more rigid. So what 
Beecham and Childress decided to do with their guidelines is to craft a degree of moral status. Just like our scale of correct action, and similar to Aristotle's doctrine of the mean, Beecham and Childress have developed a degree from which there are individuals with high moral rank and low moral rank. Low moral rank can be as little as zero. And high goes up to the max of, say, 100. You need to give this individual 100% moral importance and consideration when undergoing action. So here are the guidelines that Beecham and Childress have established. And quote, guideline one, all human beings who are sentient or have the biological potential for sentience have some level of moral status. All human beings who are not sentient and have no biological potential for sentience have no moral status. Guideline two. All human beings who are sentient have some level of moral status. All human beings who are not sentient, including those with a mere potential for sentience, have no moral status. Guideline 3. All sentient beings have some level of moral status. The level is elevated in accordance with the level of sentience and the level of cognitive complexity. Guideline 4. All human beings capable of moral agency have equal basic rights. All sentient human beings not capable of moral agency have a diminished set of rights. Guideline 5. All sentient laboratory animals have a level of moral status that affords them some protections against being caused pain or suffering. As the likelihood or the magnitude of potential pain or suffering increases, the level of moral status increases and protections must be increased accordingly. End quote. So there we can see with all those there nice equal blends of all five of the theories, the original theories. There is a lack of theory five. Again, as we've said, that seems like more of a stepping stone to understanding moral status versus a guideline for giving moral status to somebody else. But they did touch on sentience a lot, pain and pleasure, because especially in the medical field, doing no harm is one of the top priorities. But they did also touch on cognitive ability, on moral agency, and the complexity that comes with those two aspects of the human mind, both in understanding complex problems and complex morality, right and wrong. And then even in Guideline 5, they provide some protections for animals, the laboratory animals that are used to create the drugs that help human communities, the pharmaceuticals. And they extend this importance because they are of vital importance to beings of perceived higher rank, those being humans. And the name of the game here, what we're really trying to do is understand who deserves our moral considerations. Because there will come situations in an actor's life that require that adjustment. We've explained how situations can arise in the medical field where this is very prevalent. Let's take an example outside of the medical field, something that everybody could run up against. So let's say you're at a beach. All right, it's a nice day. Sun is kind of toasting your skin. Waves are crashing. And all of a sudden you hear a commotion and then you stand up and you notice that somebody had just been pulled out of the water and you realize they need CPR. They've ingested a lot of water, but Larry, the lifeguard is too busy putting bronzer on his skin. So it falls to you. You know, CPR. What are you going to do? Okay. So in this situation, that person who went into the water and nearly drowned was a moral agent because they were capable of autonomous action. And they underwent that action because, of course, they went into the water by themselves. They decided to go swimming. They didn't decide for a very heavy wave to crash into them, but that's random chance. Nonetheless, you are another moral agent in that situation. So what would you do? You would have to go and give them CPR. Try to get the water out. Try to save the person's life. But wait. Wait a second. Because if you're supposed to treat that person as a moral agent, you can't do that because you're violating one of their rights. 
rights being privacy or the right to not be touched without permission, things like that. But your virtue as a moral agent says to help people as best as you can. And they cannot override that virtue by saying no because they are physically disabled at the moment. They cannot argue against whatever you have to say. And for something like this, you can look to the guidelines, the guidelines that Beecham and Childers have provided. You look at guideline four that talks about moral agency for sentient beings. You, as the person who will administer this CPR, are the person with the moral agency. You have a higher degree of moral agency than the person who is passed out at the moment. And because of that, you are of greater moral importance than that person. You, as a being of higher moral importance, can act according to your own virtues onto that person, and it would be morally correct, as long as your actions are based on saving the person. Your administering the CPR will not harm them. Is if you were going to do harm, there would be a wrong action that would not be allowed. So you can see in this situation, there is a person that was once able to think autonomously and make their own decisions. At the moment, they are not able to do so, so their status is diminished. And status can change like that. And that's why it's important to understand these guidelines. It's important to understand what moral status means, because we can run into situations like this, where lives are in danger. You can't stop to ask this person, oh wait, is it okay to do CPR on you? No, you go and you do it. A lot of the times when you take uh, CPR courses, what they'll say to you is you keep going, you keep administering CPR until the person pushes you off. Because at that moment, when they start pushing you off, it's like, oh, what, what are you doing? Get off me. At that moment, they are capable of making their own decisions. They are back at their full level of moral agency. And again, we've defined these situations in terms of the guidelines that the authors had in their book. But even they claim that, quote, reasoned disagreement is to be expected, end quote. Because no one can be exactly sure of what it is that gives people moral agency. And no one can make rules for treating people in a certain way or understanding who should be treated in that certain way. So it's hard to pin down an argument saying that this group, this ideal, is what moral status is. I think that moral status could be something you earn. It could be viewed as something of a respect. Other people will give you their virtuous obligations because you have earned that in their eyes. That's another way to think about it. But any way you do think about it, what it comes down to is doing the right action. No matter who you're doing an action to, be they one that's achieved moral status or one that's not. If you are a moral agent, no, if you are an individual that's doing the right thing, doing well, I'd say you're a good person. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Logs a podcast dedicated to understanding. Please subscribe so you're notified of new episodes and find us anywhere you find podcasts. And please remember to laugh a little.